Welcome to CAA Live, the Council of American Ambassadors Foreign Affairs podcast. My name is Keisha King, and I'm the Council's Communications Manager. This episode features a presentation and Q&A session on U.S.-China relations with Ambassador Winston Lord at the Council's Potpourri of Diplomacy Conference on November 7, 2018. This session was moderated by CAA President Ambassador Timothy Chorba. Enjoy! A graduate of uh, Hotchkiss of Yale College and of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, Winston Lord, Winston Lord was Special Assistant to National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger, Director of the State Department's Public Poli I'm sorry, Policy Planning Staff, President of the Council on Foreign Relations, Ambassador to China under President Reagan, Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia under P President Clinton, during which time I was privileged to serve under him as Ambassador to Singapore. Ambassador Lord accompanied uh, National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger on his secret trip to Beijing in 1971. And then in 1972, he accompanied President Nixon on his historic visit to China, and he completed the trifecta by accompanying President Ford to China in 1975. Uh, Ambassador Lord participated in every meeting held by uh, National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger, Presidents Nixon and Ford, every meeting they held with Mao Zedong, Zhu Enlai, and Deng Xiaoping. As if that were not enough, Ambassador Lord was also the top assistant to uh, National Security Advisor Kissinger on Vietnam negotiations, participating in every meeting that Kissinger had with North Vietnam during the years 1970 to 1973. He was the principal drafter of the 1972 Shanghai Communique, which opened U.S. relations with China. And uh, to complete the doubleheader, he was the principal drafter of the 1973 Paris Peace Accords that ended the Vietnam War. He served as president of the Council of Foreign Relations and as chairman of the National Endowment for Democracy. Ambassador Lord's love of his uh, life is his uh, wife, the well-known author and human rights activist Betty Bao Lord. But I'll have to share with you there's another love in Ambassador Lord's life whose fate has not been as blessed as that of Betty Bao Lord and who's had a, a, at best a checkered past. I'm talking about the New York Knicks. <laughs> when, when Ambassador Lord was, uh, was Assistant Secretary, I would occasionally go into his office and one of the first questions he would always say is, did you see what the Knicks did last night, good or bad? So with that, Ambassador Lord, let me give you a, war a warm welcome. It's not only the Knicks, it's the New York Mets, <laughs> New York Rangers, I mean, it just goes on and on, and the Washington Redskins, but it's because I was in government, I had to root for one Washington team. I want to thank uh, Tim for that introduction. Uh, after hearing it, I can't wait to hear what I'm going to say. Uh, uh, Great pleasure serving with him in the Clinton administration. Now, is Sarah Roosevelt here? I know she was on the list. She's not here, is that right? 
Oh, there she is. I wanted to say hello because I particularly want to point her out. She swore me in as ambassador under Reagan as ambassador to China. So I was particularly looking forward. Uh, that's right. So uh, I mentioned this to, to make the point that I do have a bipartisan uh, background. I believe in bipartisanship. It's very tough in today's toxic atmosphere. <clears throat> and I also want to make clear that I'm a flaming centrist. There's about three or four people in that category left. So for those of you who are maybe Trump supporters, I, I do want to say in all candor in advance, I'm going to be a little tough on him. And it's not out of partisanship. It's out of a genuine concern about the direction of our country. It's, it's not like me to take on sitting presidents, but I, I don't think you can talk about China or world relations without getting into that. Now, China is so complex and so unpredictable that you really should distrust any China expert. In fact, I think a China expert is an oxymoron or just a plain moron. <laughs> so you're going to have to judge my credentials, and I'll give you one example why you should think I know what I'm talking about and one example why you can conclude I don't know what I'm talking about. In the first category, you should know that I was the first American official to enter China after 22 years. We had cut off relations in 49. There was a secret trip in 71. So mo some people think it was Nixon, but most people and well-versed audiences like you thought it was Kissinger. But no, I was there before Kissinger. Uh, we were flying secretly from Pakistan. No American official had been there, China, for 22 years. Pakistani planes, so all Pakistanis up in front. Kissinger and I were in the back of the plane as we headed toward China, but as the plane got to the Chinese border, I went to the front of the plane, left Henry in the back, so I went into China <laughs> ahead of Henry. <laughs> so I think that gives me a certain cachet. Now, on the other hand, let me uh, introduce the uh, contrary example about expertise. When I was ambassador, my wife and I went out to a temple outside of Beijing. This monk came up to us, and his eyes lit up when he heard I was the American envoy. My wife was a famous best-selling author. He said, would you do a great honor for this temple? Would you be willing to write something inspiring for our future guests to guide them in their future lives? We were extremely honored. This is something that's reserved for great poets or scholars. He went away, and we began composing. She was composing poetic couplets. I was composing Kissingerian epithets. The monk comes back with two wooden tablets, and he said, now to guide and instruct our future visitors, would you write on this tablet in English the word gentleman and this tablet the word ladies? <laughs> so, so take your pick. So ladies and gentlemen, let me discuss in roughly 15 minutes, uh, the state of our relations, a little bit what we should do, but I'd be glad to get more deeply into questions and answers. And I know you've had a long day, uh, but I'm willing to stand up here and, and take the questions as long as your schedule and stamina permit. We are facing the most severe crisis in U.S.-Chinese relations since the 1970s opening. We've had problems in the past, but they usually revolved around one issue, Taiwan or plane collision, bombing the wrong embassy, or uh, 
even the Tiananmen crisis was at a time when China was much weaker. They were not a power that could deal with us in many levels. We didn't intersect very much. But now our problems with China are systemic. You have, in any event, the, the historical foundation that's going to cause a challenge, namely of rising power versus established power. But I believe the leaders now in Beijing and in Washington have exacerbated this problem. I believe they're both rather brutal and they're both rather cruel, and I think it's hurting our relationship on top of the foundation I've mentioned. President Xi is constructing an Orwellian society, and there's certain Orwellian aspects to the current administration in dealing with facts. Now, on the Chinese side, the problems began roughly in 2008 when you had the financial crisis, which uh, cost the West its reputation in many ways. China fared better, began to feel more self-confident, and also had the coming out party of the Olympics, which was a symbol of China's growing global power. <clears throat> and under Hu Jintao, the previous president, there was repression, there was some aggressiveness abroad, but it's gotten much worse under Xi, both domestically and in foreign policy. It's the worst repression we've ever seen in China. Just the Xinjiang situation, I'm using brushstrokes here, qualifies Xi to go to the world uh, court uh, for crimes against humanity. Facial recognition, surveillance, crackdown, anti-Western values, censorship, I could go on and on. And she is uh, aggravated complete power to himself. Overseas, China's become mercantilistic and protectionist. Both human theft and cyber theft of uh, commercial secrets, forced transfer of technology, stealing of intellectual property rights, subsidies to their companies, determined by 2025 to dominate advanced industries. The Belt and Road Initiative is legitimate in many ways, but there are certain geopolitical and security overtones as they seek bases. In the South and East China Sea, they are ignoring international law, and Xi has gone back on his pledge not to militarize the islands. In North Korea, for decades, they've undermined pressures on, on the North. China is now squeezing Taiwan and Hong Kong. They're interfering in the U.S. and other Western societies in ways that are unacceptable. They're promoting the Chinese model for global governance. I will say there's one bright spot, and that is that China, in certain areas of global governance, has been constructive, certainly on climate change, Iran, anti-piracy, anti-terrorism, the largest contributor to UN peacekeeping. But against the general deterioration that I've just sketched, American opinion, at least among the elites, is coalesced into a pretty hardline consensus, the need to be tougher with China. Uh, because so many hopes or assumptions have been buried that China would continue its economic reform and opening, it seems to be sliding backwards on that, that it would be a responsible stakeholder in the world scene. That is certainly not the case in many respects, that our economies would conver converge, that they might loosen up the political system in their own self-interest, <clears throat> that they would perhaps honor the rules of the international system, which has enabled them to grow so impressively. Uh, none of this has happened, so you have a growing concern and distrust across the board in America, in the executive branch, the Congress, the Pentagon, the media, think tanks, experts, and even the business community, which up to now has been a great source of positive U.S.-China relations. 
So there's a tectonic shift taking place. I'm currently on two task forces populated by some of the best China watchers in this country, and we're going to have a report out in November 29th on China's influence activities in our society, and another one in January on general U.S.-China relations. In addition, the lines of communication are drying up. The strategic dialogue on security and economic issues has been dropped, as has many military-to-military -military talks. Even dialogues in regional and functional issues are slowing down. So increasingly, China sees America as being out to contain it, and Americans see China increasingly as trying to supplant us on the world scene. Now, in response to this, the Trump administration has done some good things, in my opinion. Their instinct to push back and be a little firmer, I'm using shorthand, I think is correct. We are in a strategic competition, as they've outlined, and much of Vice President Pence's speech I thought was very sound, especially pointing out how they're interfering in our society, although he exaggerated they're not messing around in our elections yet. Uh, so some of this is sound, and some specific steps, I think, to respond to the Chinese, I think, have been correct. Uh, more military assets for the Asia-Pacific region, more military uh, naval patrols in the South China Sea, being tougher on economics, specifically recently focusing on the technology problem, uh, support for Taiwan within the One China framework, uh, modest response to the Belt and Road Initiative by combining OPIC and AID for development finance, although it's only $60 billion, but it's a start. But overall, I'm afraid the administration's response is inadequate, in many ways incoherent, and like most of Trump's foreign policy, strictly transactional, although he has advisors who are quite good in the NSC and so on, so there is debate going on. The reason I'm concerned about the Trump response, because I think China policy, just like foreign policy in general, begins at home. We have great assets to build upon, but I'm afraid we're squandering them. Uh, the president has divided Americans. His basic objective is to make America white again. He's sowing fear and hatred and xenophobia. He's attacking democratic institutions like the rule of law and the media, and just truth itself, voting rights. We're hardly a city on a hill. It's very hard to promote our world image and have influence when this is happening at home. On the economic front, I think the president has done extremely well, and no one can deny that. But even here, there are certain bubbles, a huge debt problem, an entitlement problem. There's no investment in the future, and the Democrats bear some responsibility for this, whether it's infrastructure or energy or R&D and science and advanced technology. In short, we're giving America a bad name with respect to democracy and our soft power. Meanwhile, on the global front, we have a leader who loves dictators, uh, who ignores human rights and democracy, who attacks our allies, who is making America first, threatened to be America alone, who focuses mostly on military power, and who has chosen trade wars with our allies. Now, lately, that's beginning to look better. He's made some deals, but usually he says, I inherited the worst mess we've ever had, gets a few token changes, whether it's Korea trade or NAFTA, and it declares it the greatest breakthrough ever made. 
but if this means we can patch up relations with our allies so we can have multilateral pressure on China, uh, that would be a good thing. But in withdrawing from the climate change, Iran, and so on, uh, and multilateral institutions in general, he is jettisoning what American presidents of both parties have been following uh, for decades. Uh, so this is bad for America, and it's bad for competing with China. And Asia specifically, uh, he doesn't go to APEC and show up, which is important in Asia. We drew from the TPP trade agreement that focuses on the military response only. He's sowing doubts among our allies about our staying power, and he is totally messing up the North Korean situation, which we can get into in our question and answer period. So in the remaining brief time, what do we do about this? I mentioned the two task forces. Uh, the one on sharp power uh, will be pretty much along the following lines, that there's much of what China does in our society which is legitimate, public diplomacy. We do it, other countries do it, but there's much that's covert, coercive, or corrupt that we should respond to without overreacting and without having a double standard. I can't give you more details given the time I have, but we have specific areas where we think we can respond to this challenge in an intelligent way. The best thing we could do about U.S.-China relations is, uh, is not very feasible, and that is to have different leaders in Beijing and Washington. In 12 days, Xi and Trump will meet. It's clear there will be no quick fix to the situation I've outlined. I think there's a 49% chance that Xi will throw a few bones on economics to Trump and he'll declare victory and say it's the greatest deal ever made. Uh, I think there's a 51% chance that they will stabilize the relationship somewhat, agree to continue talks and do it within a framework of certain principles and hold off imposing any more tariff barriers for the time being. But whatever they pronounce, it's not obviously going to be able to solve the severe crisis I've just mentioned. So, Going forward, I think it's incumbent on both sides, and I think I made it clear that it's mostly the Chinese fault, in my view, where we are. And that some of Trump's response has been good, some has not been good. But both sides are gonna have to see that this relationship is competitive, not getting us into collisions. That there's more, not less, dialogue and engagement. That we make clear to each other red lines that shouldn't be crossed. <clears throat> we avoid miscalculation. And we work together wherever we possibly can. One of the problems of the Trump administration is that the few areas we could cooperate with China, like Iran and climate change, he's withdrawn from. So it shrinks the positive agenda that we could have. Uh, the, the best way to approach China on our domestic and global front is not going to happen under this president uh, in terms of u unity in America, investing in our future, strengthening our alliances, uh, leadership and multilateral institutions, building up our soft power. So I think the best we can hope for, and I'll include on this note, is on economics we should stay firm, uh, but not make phony deals, and emphasize, as they're beginning to in the administration, the technology IPR cyber problems as opposed to uh, tariff wars. And we should be working with our friends to press China on these issues, because they have the same problems we have, and maybe he's maneuvering to get us in that position. If we can get Canada and Mexico and then Japan and Europe joining us, they all have a problem with what the Chinese are doing. It'd be much more effective. Uh, 
Uh, on security, the stepped-up patrols in the South China Sea are a good idea, but joint exercises with other countries would be more effective. Uh, we should increase the training and capabilities of our friends in the region with respect to naval issues. We should begin showing up more at Asian meetings. Uh, we should enhance our support for Taiwan within the One China framework with high-level visits, continued arms sales, promoting Taiwan's international profile. We should raise concerns about the very difficult problems happening in, in Hong Kong. We should have renewed military-to-military -military dialogue to avoid incidents at sea. And globally, we should work together with where we can with China. And there are still some areas that this can happen, public health, anti-terrorism, fighting uh, drug traffic, uh, and anti-piracy, and so on. With respect to uh, Chinese influence in our society, I've already touched on that. We're trying to steer between passivity and, and hypocrisy uh, and overreaction. And I commend that report to you. It will come out November 29. So in conclusion, we're in for strategic competition for many decades. We're not going to be partners, and I don't think we'll have conflict. I think we can and should head that off. I've worked for good relations for almost half a century. I will continue to do so. I believe we can still, despite all the horrors that I've drawn for you, maintain a stable relationship, and world order depends on it. And I'm confident over the long run in our ability to compete with China because of our assets and their problems. But first, we must get beyond the current administration, uh, which is not only threatening to make China great again, but is threatening the very soul of America. Thank you. So I'll be glad to take your questions. Yes, Tim. Good to see Tim Tao again. Winston, thank you for that. Uh, you mentioned Taiwan and the importance of Taiwan, which we all recognize. Uh, what should we do? be doing more. For example, uh, foreign countries, many foreign countries that are allies of ours have been withdrawing their embassies uh, from Taiwan and moving it to China. I guess there are only 17 countries now in the world that have diplomatic relations with Taiwan. What are we doing and what should we be doing to buttress Taiwan just besides driving, flying, and taking a boat through the Taiwan Strait. Right. Well, we've had a balancing act ever since the Shanghai communique of moving ahead with China despite this sensitive issue, respecting a one-China policy, but assuring Taiwan security. And not only have we moved ahead with China on the whole, Taiwan has thrived thanks to its own efforts and enlightened leaders. And so it's our objective to continue that. It's a tough balancing act. It's particularly tough now because the President of Taiwan is the head of the DPP, which has been for independence. She's been careful to avoid that, not to provoke China, uh, try to maintain the status quo, but the Chinese have been squeezing her and squeezing anybody dealing with Taiwan. So in that context, as I said, I think the Trump administration is correct, and we should continue to get to your question. I would have more high-level visits by cabinet ministers, which is symbolically important, but also uh, we can do business, particularly in the economic area. Continued arms sales don't have big announcements once a year, but they're beginning to have piecemeal announcements. 
throughout the year, make sure they're for defensive purposes and they suit Taiwan's uh, needs. Continue to support Taiwan and international organizations, either as observers or they have a lot to contribute and China's been squeezing in there. Uh, continue to tell China that we're not going to abandon our policy in one China, which is very sensitive for them, but that we feel they, they ought to be talking to the head of Taiwan we think has been reasonable. That's about all I can offer. We, can, we can't overthrow the one China policy, uh, but I think within that we can strengthen Taiwan's sense of security. Yes. You had the unique uh, uh, distinction of working with Henry Kissinger. Right. You got to know him pretty well. What can you share with us that makes him so unique or different or brilliant? Have we got a couple of hours here? <laughs> Uh, he's the most extraordinary person I've ever met. He has his flaws, and who doesn't? Except maybe he's a few here in the audience, I don't know. But um, I always describe my relationship with him as, and I was his closest associate for eight years. We've maintained our relationship. By the way, I have a, I take a little chance here, I have a book coming out on him this May. Uh, my wife published her first book at the age of 25. I'm publishing my first at the age of 81, so <laughs> I'm a little behind her. Uh, I describe my relationship as the agony and the ecstasy. Agony because he, he, he would press you so hard and stretch you. Uh, I'll give you an example. Now, this is not literally true, but it gives you the flavor of working with him. My, my other responsibilities, in addition to the ones that Tim mentioned, was uh, I was his principal speechwriter or in charge of his speeches, particularly when he was in the State Department. So it goes somewhat like this, because he really thought speeches were important, as they are, in terms of signals of our policy, particularly to foreign embassies and other countries, even if it wasn't paid that much attention to in the United States. And you can also get decisions made by forcing the bureaucracy to agree to a speech. So he would call me in and said, I'd like you to do a speech on this subject, and uh, please give me a draft. So I'd go back a few days later with a draft, and he'd call me in the next day, and he said, Winston, is this the best you can do? <laughs> and I said, I thought so, but let me try another crack at it. So I went back, did another draft, came back in. The next day he called me and said, are you sure this is the best you can do? And I said, well, I've worked pretty hard on it, but I'll, I'll keep trying. Well, anyway, this went on for six drafts. And the seventh draft I came in, I knew what the question I was going to get up by this time. He said, is really this the best thing? He said, Henry, I've tweaked every colon, every semicolon, every sentence. I've done the best I can do. I can't improve this one inch further. So he turned to me and smiled and said, in that case, now I'll read it. <laughs> now, I will say that he demanded excellence, and I, that's just an example. Uh, but he, he knew people's strengths and weaknesses. He knew I could write pretty well, so he would stretch me on, on writing memos or writing speeches. But if someone else wasn't good at that, he wouldn't beat up on them. Uh, he did not like yes men or yes women. When I first went to the NSC, I was sitting across in the executive office building, not in the West Wing. Uh, and he needed a new special assistant a year after I got there. In the intervening year, I had sent him several memos, some of which criticized current policy and raised troubling questions. And it was because I did that in a way that he felt was intellectually uh, honest, he hired me as a specialist. He, he hired me because I was challenging him. He doesn't like mushy advocacy, but he respected it. So that's another thing, to, uh, a myth about him. Uh, 
He did drive me crazy, though. I mean, he would, I'm a great Redskin football fan. And sure enough, at noon on Sunday, just before the kickoff, he would call me up and make me do some work and so on. So I quit about once a week. It's, it's like what my father used to say, is it's easy to quit smoking, I, I quit smoking every week, you know. So, uh, so I was, but uh, in the process, not only was it fantastic for my career, obviously, not only was I involved in some of the most dramatic events of uh, recent decades, uh, but he really stretched me and my capabilities, so I always have great respect and affection for him. He had a great sense of humor, I'll give you one other example, because uh, <clears throat> he would use this humor when moments of tension. He would go crazy if his schedule was too tight or somebody lost his laundry. But if he was in the middle of a war, uh, he was calm and, and, and collected. Uh, so, uh, well, I, I don't want to take too many time on, on anecdotes, but I, I will mention this one. Uh, when we opened up to China, they had two prisoners of Americans uh, CIA people who flew into China during the Korean War and were imprisoned. One had been let, let out, but one was still there. And his name was Downey. So Kissinger raised with Joe and I. We went on nine trips all together, two with presidents. Kept raising this issue to no avail. He said, please let Downey out. He's been in jail. We realized he was guilty, but he's been there 40 years. Let the poor man out. Never worked. Well, just before one of our trips, we learned that Mrs. Downey was very sick and was going to die soon of cancer. So we went over there, and Kissinger appealed to Joe and Lai on humanitarian grounds, let him out so he can see his mother. Lo and behold, it worked. Downey got out. Okay, flash forward, we're now under President Ford. Mrs. Downey is very healthy and doing very nicely. <laughs> so Henry and I composed a memo to President Ford. He said, Mr. President, we have a terrible credibility problem with the Chinese. <laughs> We got Downey out and the fact his mother was uh, dying and she's still very healthy. So we have three options. One, you could give an Oval Office speech and apologize to the Chinese. Secondly, you could send Downey back to China. <laughs> and thirdly, we could put out a CIA contract on his mother. <laughs> and we sent that into the president. Uh, the fact he's willing to do that. Of course, Ford saw it. He, Ford's a great guy, but sometimes he was not totally on top of things. So he, told, he said, Henry, we can't do any of these things. <laughs> anyway, that's a long-winded way. So, uh, but he, he was, uh, he's an amazing man. I'll give you one last comment on him. Here's a man who's 95. Most cabinet people disappear without a trace after a year or so. Here he is still, as we speak, he just gave a major speech on China and Singapore. I called last week to find out how his health was and they told me, he just came back from you, he's off to Singapore. He sees all the world leaders all the time. He has a schedule that would make a dentist jealous. Uh, he's got one eye. He's got assorted medical problems I won't go into. He's 95. He runs a business. He, he advises Americans and foreigners. And he writes books on the side. I mean, it's just amazing. And two years ago, he set out intellectually on the issue of artificial intelligence, which is going to be a crucial and very complex. He knew nothing about it. At the age of 93, he had the stamina and curiosity to say, I'm going to find out about this. He went out to Silicon Valley amidst all his other schedules and started learning about this issue. And he wrote a ma major piece in The Atlantic about three months ago on artificial intelligence. Just, just to me, I read it three times. I still don't understand it, but that's, 
that's my fault, not his. I could go on forever, and I almost have. So, uh, look forward to reading your book. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, over here. Hi, my name is Madeline Bauer. Um, my question is on the Xinjiang question. Um, I was actually in Xinjiang in Kashgar in Urumqi in, um, last May, and I wow. saw firsthand some of the political tightening and learned of the existence of the camps. And when this has made news recently, I mean, I didn't realize the extent to it, and I think it's deeply worrisome for everybody around the world, those engaged in the China field. So my question for you is twofold. Um, first, in your career, um, in how did you deal um, with promoting constructive engagement with China um, with the knowledge of human rights, rights abuses like Tibet or Tiananmen? And then my second question is, um, how would you recommend, I mean, there are so many stumbling blocks right now in the US-China relationship, how would you recommend that Xinjiang factor into this question and kind of these negotiations? Well, on the last point, uh, we should be raising it. Uh, and it should be raising it in the UN. We're off the Human Rights Council, but there's other ways to raise it and bring attention. It won't do any good, but it, we, we, we owe it to the people there and the general values of human rights. So this is so horrendous that it should be raised, and uh, it's not going to muck up our relationship or anything else. But you put your finger on it because it's already serious, and they'll complain, but it's not going to hurt the relationship. Uh, the single biggest challenge, and all of you have been ambassadors, so I think you would agree with me on this, is how do you balance values and interests? I sometimes think they overlap, certainly. But you know, to what extent do you promote human rights? To what extent do you be realpolitik? Now, I'm schizophrenic on this. I work for Henry Kissinger, who is the world's greatest geopolitic, realpolitik, don't care that much about human rights. I mean, he cares about it, but not high on the agenda, and yet, my mother took Eleanor Roosevelt's place as ambassador to the UN for Human Rights. My wife was chair of Freedom House, and I was chair of the National Endowment for Democracy. So these two strains are in me. I, I feel that you have to, it's case by case basis. And if all you have to do with a country is a human rights situation, you can devote your energy to that. If you've got other interests like security and economic, uh, you can't make it the only or the principal driving force. I do think it should be part of the agenda. I think Trump should make it part of his agenda without it being a determinant factor for several reasons. Number one, to maintain domestic and congressional support for a policy, you've got to stand for your values. Number two, I think it enhances our sharp power, uh, soft power image, and I think it's important for that reason. But number three, I th and it gives heart to reformers and dissidents in other countries that you're at least concerned about their fate. But I think there's a real, get to this interest of values and interests, I believe there's an overlap here. I, I, if you promote democracy, not in an arrogant way, and recognizing the case of China is going to have to come from the Chinese people, not from us, that over the long run, democratic, transparent, rule of law countries don't fight each other. Uh, there may be terrorists in a democracy, but they're not harboring terrorists, the leaders. They're there despite it being a democracy. Uh, democracy don't produce refugees. They don't cover up Chernobyl's and SARS epidemics. So I think there's concrete national interest in promoting a more democratic world, but it has to be balanced off against these other interests, and that particularly the case of China. So I would raise it more with China. It's not going to hurt our relationship any more than it's been hurt, and I think it does strengthen uh, our general posture in the world.
At this point in the Q&A session, Ambassador Louise Oliver asked a question about the militarization of the South China Sea. Well, I said I'm a flaming centrist, so here I'm going to be on this issue, too. Uh, there's no question that Chinese are violating international law, which is a problem in and of itself. There was a court case which awarded rights to the Philippines and destroyed most Chinese rights, which they're totally ignoring. And there's no question that they're not only asserting their sovereignty uh, over 90% of that area, uh, but she promised to uh, President Obama that he wouldn't militarize the islands they're occupying, and he's gone ahead and done so. They do provide a, a, a threat, because now they have missiles and other things on to, to shipping nearby, including military shipping. Uh, and so the general proposition of expanding their sovereign claims and ignoring international law and the potential military implications, I think are serious. And it's a, it's a serious issue, and it's an example I made of China's growing aggressiveness. Having said that, we shouldn't overstate their military significance. We could take out those islands and their military installations in half an hour if we had to. So the issue here really is freedom of navigation, which the Chinese so far haven't messed around with and said they will respect. But we have to continue the patrols and the joint exercise that can to demonstrate the need and the requirement for freedom of navigation. And the potential is there for them to control uh, this area, and we're talking about I don't have the figures at hand, but something like 40% of the world's trade moves through that area. So it's very important geopolitically and economically. So it's a potential problem. The precedent of breaking law and expanding the sovereign space should be resisted, but it's very tough to know what to do because they're smart enough to stop short of outright provocations, although we do have some close encounters at sea where they've been harassing us. Uh, but it's never enough for us to take a really robust stand uh, but it's nibbling away and making a fait accompli. It is a fait accompli. They, they control a lot of these islands. I think we could, should continue to oppose it in the ways that I've mentioned, uh, and I don't think we should exaggerate its significance uh, in military terms. Yes? China, North Korea, Trump policy? Yeah. Uh, let me say that successive administrations have messed up North Korea policy. It's a bipartisan failure but we should at least learn from our mistakes. It's a typical Trump ploy where he, he personalizes foreign policy. So getting along with a leader, he's got love letters with Kim Jong-un, who is, by the way, the worst dictator in the world. This is the worst human rights situation in the world, bar none. I'm not saying it should dominate our agenda, but it ought at least be mentioned. And you don't have to insult the foreign leader, but you don't have to have love letters with this brutal dictator. So that's part of the problem. But he has this summit in Singapore where there's broad principles and he declares, I've solved it, you know, give me the Nobel Peace Prize, <laughs> which encourages, of course, the North Koreans and their tactics. They're smart, like other countries. They know you flatter this guy uh, and you can, you can get progress out of him that's cosmetic. Meanwhile, he calls off uh, military exercises. You could justify that as a temporary move to try to improve the atmosphere, but he keeps insulting them. He says they cost too much, as if they're not crucial for our defense. And they, we have not even gotten the key issue of how each side defines denuclearization. Trump keeps saying they've agreed to denuclearization, but their definition of it, and we've never gotten a different definition from any administration, including this one, is get rid of American nuclear umbrella for South Korea, dissolve the U.S.-South Korean alliance. 
Uh, and if we do all that, then we can think about uh, getting rid of our own weapons. So they have a very different vision of denukes than we do. The first step that ought to be done, and we obviously can't get done, is to get them to declare fully their, all their facilities, missile and nuclear, uh, be very hard and be willing to have them inspected in a, in a, down the road. That's very tough to get, but that would show that the, maybe they are serious about changing their course. They've got enough capability. Uh, but we're not getting anywhere. And of course, you may have seen just overnight the talks that Pompeo was supposed to have with the North Koreans tomorrow have been postponed indefinitely. Uh, and the North Koreans were very tough two days ago, said if we don't get rid of our sanctions, uh, we're, we're going to restart our programs. So I'm pessimistic that North Korea is never going to give up the nuclear weapons. I, I don't object to trying to at least get a cap, and I'd rather have them have 20 weapons uh, than 200 and so on, and missiles that don't hit Chicago, uh, and certainly not New York. <laughs> but uh, what we've done now is what Trump was good at was in, enforcing sanctions and getting the Chinese to help to a certain extent. Uh, but all that's gone now because uh, the pressures on getting rid of sanctions are off, and so we can't pressure North Korea. So uh, I think he's made just about every mistake in the book. Now, there's one other complicating factor, to be fair to Trump or any president. This is the South Korean Peninsula, after all. You've got a very dovish administration there who want to go ahead with North Korea. And, you know, who are we to second guess? It's their fate. Seoul is sitting, you know, a few miles from all these rockets, et cetera. So we have to stay in lockstep with them. And, but it's the same regime that had the sunshine policy 15 years ago, which bribed Kim Il-sung to have a summit and which uh, went too far in the other direction. So any president's going to have trouble staying in lockstep with South Korea if they want a firm policy. But this president doesn't even have a firm policy anymore. He's given that away by a premature summit by his love letters and by canceling military exercises and encouraging China, Russia, and South Korea to lift their sanctions. So I'm very pessimistic. I, I want to be fair, though. Uh, for a while, he made more progress than Obama and others did but with his pressures. But then he got to a point where he had some leverage and he's thrown it away. That's the trouble. Yes? One more question. Okay. Uh, the theft of uh, intellectual property and the forced transfer of technology are two, the two largest right. economic problems. If so, what specifically should we be asking the Chinese to do other than empty promises to address those issues? And let me ask you a totally unrelated right. question. You can answer either one. I want to know your impressions of Mao and Lee and, and their relationship. Um, uh, Mao and Joe and Lai, you mean? Yeah, Lai. Yeah, yeah. Lai, Mao and Lai, yeah. Okay. Because yeah. of the time, let me be very brief on the first, and so I have time for the second. Uh, first, we got to, as I said, get all our allies and other countries that have the same problem with China in a united front. And to Trump's credit, he may be maneuvering, however incoherently, where he's got mending some fences with Canada and J uh, Japan and, and maybe Europe, and we can bring a united front on this issue. The Chinese only respond. Uh, I think on intellectual property rights, they've been violating this for 30 years. When I was assistant secretary, we had the biggest uh, IPR agreement ever, and they're still violating it. However, like other developing countries, and no longer developing, as they get more indigenous skills and innovation, they have in some incentive to protect their own intellectual property rights. So as China's getting stronger, I think we have some self-interest at work here. Uh,
but I, I, I do think to the extent they, they steal our property, we, we have to re respond in a targeted fashion. On technology, we should make it clear that it's, un, you know, if, it, it, the only thing that's going to appeal to them is self-interest. But if companies start leaving because they can't invest and work in China unless they turn over their secrets to a joint venture company, which then takes them and drives them out of business, uh, we've got to bring that home. And again, we need our allies to do that. So uh, I, I wish he would focus, and I think there's some evidence that he's focusing on that rather than how many soybeans or automobiles go back and forth. Trade deficits are not bad in and of themselves. I will say, however, <laughs> when it's a billion dollars a day, that's what it is. That's sort of real money. So the deficit's not inconsequential, but it shouldn't be our primary focus. Now, Mao and Joe, uh, I was in five meetings with Mao. Can I tell one more anecdote if we got time? Absolutely. This is a, another poor president for us taking it on the chin today. But my, I, lo I love the guy, he's a great guy, but I'm sorry he dropped Rockefeller, but he's, he's a good man, a very humane man, and he cost himself the presidency by pardoning Nixon, which was for the good of the country, but cost him, so I have great respect. Uh, but in the final meeting with Mao, I was with President Ford. By this time, Mao was extremely sick. And so as they sat down, Mao turned to Ford and said, I want you to know that I will soon be getting an invitation from God. Ford wasn't, didn't quite take that in anyway. So we had a meeting for about an hour. As we're leaving, Ford goes up to Mao and says, thank you, Mr. Chairman, great meeting. I want you to know, I hope you get that invitation from God very soon. <laughs> <laughs> so the translator, of course, said, the president, Mr. Chairman, wishes you 10,000 years or something. <laughs> Look, uh, on Mao and Joe, there's been no better portraits than Kissinger himself. And you'll see some more of that in a book that's coming out in May. But they were totally different. Mao, of course, was ruthless, and he, he joins for the gold medal with Stalin and, uh, and Hitler. Uh, but in a room, he, he, he exuded power and influence, even when he was sick. And the reason the Nixon meeting, which I was in on, was only for an hour is because the doctors didn't want him to meet at all. He was that sick, even that in the first meeting of the five I was with him. But he, uh, he exuded power, and he handled the meeting with Nixon in a very subtle way partly because he was sick, but partly for other reasons. Nixon kept trying to engage him on substantive policies, Vietnam, Russia, Taiwan, Japan. And Mao kept saying, that's up to the prime minister, Joe and Lai. Uh, <clears throat> and he would just give a, a sentence or two. So in Taiwan, he said, we can wait 100 years. On Russia, he said, we're a little nervous about the polar bear or something. I, I'm not giving exact quotes. Uh, he said he liked conservatives, which, of course, Nixon was. So very brief, and he kept going from one subject to another, and we were sort of disappointed. I talked to Henry afterwards. We said that wasn't quite the meeting we hoped for because there wasn't much real engagement. We realized over the next several days as we talked to Joe and Lai for hours that Mao had skillfully uh, had sort of gone from one major topic to another with just a couple of brush strokes had set the strategic framework within which Joe and Lai very skillfully then worked. So, for example, that we could postpone the Taiwan issue, that we did have an interest in, in balancing the Soviet Union and so on. Uh, so uh, he was very impressive in that way. Joe and Lai was totally different, of course, very elegant, Mandarin, 
Kissinger has said of all the leaders he's met, he's met just about everyone, he's the most impressive he's ever seen. I would agree in my own more humble experience. He had great charm, he, he knew his brief, he never used notes, he could talk strategy, uh, he could talk uh, tactics, philosophy, history, he was tough but he was genial and he could, you could work with him. The one strange thing about him though was the way he acted when he was with Mao. All the meetings I was in with Mao, Joe and I was there. And he was deferential, okay, but he was almost obsequious. And of course, that's how he survived. I mean, you don't get to be Mao's number two, or quite a few number twos left the scene. So there was that element to him, and you could say it's, he had to do it or it's inevitable. But the sad example of that was when Joe and I was on his deathbed, and this is, comes from uh, Mao's doctor, so I think it's authentic. In 76, both Mao and Joe were sick, and the succession was gonna be crucial. Joe and I had cancer. Mao prevented him from having an operation. Now, whether he would have lived or not, I don't know. But Joe and I knew that Mao would not let him have an operation. Mao wanted to outlast Joe so that he could determine the succession. Joe and I on his deathbed said, long live Chairman Mao. So it's a, it's a sad story. You can see how he did contain some of the excesses of Mao, including during the Cultural Revolution. China was better off and we were better off. He was there, he was absolutely brilliant. But there are some who would say he was an enabler of Mao and gave him some respectability. Uh, I tend to be sympathetic with the excesses he reigned in, not to mention the towering personality of the man. Okay. That was Ambassador Winston Lord at the Council of American Ambassadors Potpourri of Diplomacy Conference. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to CAA Live on iTunes or Google Play and leave us a review. Tweet us your thoughts on this week's episode and tag us at AMER Ambassadors with the hashtag CAA Live.